Our scripture reading today is Acts 3, 2 through 23. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the, palace, in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus's name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send you the Messiah, who has been appointed for you, even Jesus." Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise, you for, raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from the people. Morning. So we're in a season of Easter that stretches from Easter Sunday to Pentecost. It's 50 days, and we, we, we are in the light of Jesus' resurrection. I asked you to think about last week this question of what does Jesus' resurrection make possible? And last week we focused on this, that Jesus' resurrection has the power to, to release this tight grip we, we have on our stuff, on our money, on our resources. 
and use it for the benefit of others. And today I want to look at uh, the healing power of Jesus' resurrection. I think we have what I see is two stories of healing. One of them is pretty obvious, I think will be pretty obvious. One of them I think is less obvious, but I think there's still signs that there's been deep healing that's happened. Let's start with the first one. We're in, we're in Acts 3. There's a man at the temple gate that's uh, been lame since birth. And our story begins with Peter and John, these two former disciples of Jesus. Uh, that's three in the afternoon. So these are, it's a good, good reminder. These are, this is the time of day. Uh, there's two key times of the day where Jewish people would pray. This is one of them at 3 p.m. And so these are good devout, practicing Jews. And not only that, but they're with other devout Jews, right? So if you're going to, if you're going to beg for money, this is not a bad place to be because you've got these devout Jews who are coming in to pray. It's a good place to hang out if you're a beggar uh, to ask for alms. And we read this man has been, he's been lame since birth, meaning he's, he's totally dependent uh, on, on other people. He's helpless he needs a handout. When I lived in, in West Africa and Benin, I would go down to the capital city of Cotonou sometimes, and you would get around on these motorcycles that we acted as taxis, and you'd come up to these busy intersections, and, and there'd be people that would be begging. But I think the difference there than here that I've noticed is that often there it would be a child leading someone who was blind, or sometimes someone had no use of their legs, and so they would literally kind of scoot on the concrete to beg. When you're in a, in a place there's not a social safety net, where your physical conditions leave you with really no other option but to do this, to beg to survive. And this man sees Peter and John entering the temple. He asks for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. So notice how, how Peter, he's got to get the man's attention. Think about how long this guy has been doing this. How many thousands and thousands of people who have passed by him, how he's asked. I'm sure he's in some sort of kind of haze, some kind of stupor. He's just another two people passing by that he asked for something. And what he's asking for is money. And Peter says, look at us. I'm sure at this point, he's, he has to have raised the man's expectations that he's going to receive uh, what he asked for. Silver and gold I do not have, but... I'm guessing at this moment, the man's face falls because the one thing the man is asking for, Peter doesn't have, right? So maybe Peter's got a sandwich in his knapsack he can give him. Maybe Peter's got a Walmart certificate. Maybe Peter's got a gospel track in his back pocket he can give him. But Peter does not have the one thing that the guy wants. He wants money. He wants the thing that's going to help him survive another day, that's going to enable him to come back tomorrow, come back the next day and the next day, and do that for the rest of his life. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk, and he went with them to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. One of my favorite moments of the year when I was farming and raising cattle was about this time of year. 
The spring flush of grass had been growing, and you're trying to hold out to release the cattle till it gets at least high enough for you to release them. And so these cattle that I had had been in a pretty small, confined area for months, and they'd spent a lot of time in a barn. They'd been eating hay. Some of it, honestly, probably got rained on before it got baled. It was slightly moldy. It was not the best hay. And they would stare out lovingly across the electric fence at this grass that was growing. And I was waiting, but, but, but at about this time of the year, you could take down that electric gate and release them out into the pasture. And those cattle would bound out there and do what they loved more than anything, what they were made to do. They were grazing on fresh grass. And after a lifetime of trapped in this body that would not do what it was meant to do, this man, in an instant, he's set free to do all these things, all these things that he's watched all these people do in front of him, he can now do. He can stand up for the first time. He can jump. He can walk on his own two feet. And joy breaks out in this man. He praises God. His, he's doing what he's supposed to do, what his body was built to do. Uh, back in Luke's gospel, remember we're in Acts. Acts is part two of Luke, same author. It's essentially the second part uh, of a sequel. And in Luke's gospel, there's a scene where uh, John the Baptist sends some messengers to Jesus and says, are you the one we're waiting for? And Jesus responds this, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead, dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So the lame walk. Healing power, uh, we, saw, we saw in Mark, we see in all the Gospels, is unleashed in uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. And now we're seeing that power unleashed again. There's, there's power in the resurrected name of Jesus. In, in the book of Acts, you're going to see uh, sins forgiven in the name of Jesus. You're going to see miracles transpire in the name of Jesus. That's going to be the name that's laid on every Christian at baptism. And there's power in this name because... We, we believe and we trust and we see that, that this was not just a man who lived in the past and then died. This is a man who was raised from the dead, who ascended to heaven, who, who sits at the right hand of the Father, meaning he actively reigns from heaven. So let's say, what is this, what, what might this story, uh, how might this apply to our lives? Let's look at two things. First, notice how Peter gives the man what he asked for, not what he asked for, but what he needs. Peter gives the man not what he asked for, but what he needs. The man asked for silver and gold. He doesn't ask for a physical healing. I'm sure, I would guess that the physical healing doesn't even cross the man's mind. He, Peter doesn't have silver and gold, but he has what the man needs. I think this is often the case with us. There's, there's often a problem under a problem. So in this case, the man's problem is that he needs some money, right? That's his initial problem. That's the the problem he's consumed with. He's got to collect enough money to get through that day and get him back here the next day. But there's a problem under the problem. The, the bigger problem, the root problem, is his body is broken. He needs more deeper, more holistic healing than a few coins can give him. And I think often we're pretty confident, uh, we're pretty confident we think we know what we need. I think most of us, a lot of us. We need a bit of silver and gold, or maybe we don't need literally silver and gold. Maybe we do, but we've got a list of things. Usually each of us has a list of things in their mind that, that we're chasing after, that we're pretty sure will improve our lives. 
if we're able to procure those, if we're able to obtain those things. They'll make us happy. They'll give purpose to a life. They'll, they'll finally make us feel fulfilled. This, this ache in us that we feel, they'll fulfill us. Or, or maybe we're just a, in a bit of a stupor like this man. Like all we want is something to take the edge off the day. Something that's just gonna get us to tomorrow like this man. But I think often as disciples of Jesus, we, we often don't get what we're asking for. But I think we often get what we need when we hang out with Jesus. See, when, when Peter looks at the man, he looks attentively. He stares deep in the man. He sees what he really needs. He sees the problem underneath the problem. And I'm convinced that the older I get, that we're not that good at figuring out what we actually need. We know what we want. I just don't think we're all that good at actually knowing what we really need. We're pretty good at seeing the surface problem. We know we have this sense that something's not right in our lives, but it's harder to see what is the root, what is deeper, what's the problem underneath the problem. We need Jesus for that, who, who has the ability to stare deep within us, to see the root problem. We also need community. We do this following Jesus thing together for many reasons. One of them is that oftentimes other people are better at seeing that than we are. Oftentimes, they have a better sense what is the problem underneath the problem than we do. So first point, Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, often we get what we need, not what we want. But second thing, I think we get a picture of how creation was meant to be. So usually when we see a miracle like this in the Bible, we think, well, that's, that's cool. That's a suspension of the natural order. That's not normal. Like that's, it's not normal for a man who's been lame since birth to all of a sudden, so his muscles have clearly atrophied at this point, to all of a sudden be able to walk and jump. But Tim Keller says this about miracles. I think this is helpful. So listen to this quote. Christ's miracles were not the suspension of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. They were a reminder that once was prior, that of once was prior to the fall and a preview of what will eventually be a universal reality once again a world of peace and justice without death, disease, and conflict. So what does he mean here? What does he mean when he says miracles are not a suspension of the natural order, but actually a restoration of the natural order? Well, look at the miracles Jesus does in the Gospels. And then look at, there's also these miracles that are, this is the first miracle by an apostle in Acts, but we're going to have other miracles. If you notice, Jesus never just does miracles to show off his raw power. So like, he doesn't just do like this trick. He doesn't say like, I'm gonna levitate this piano momentarily and I'm gonna drop it down, right? There's never like any kind of tricks that happen. What does he do? Think back on the miracles. What are the miracles that happen? They, they sound a lot like the, what we just read in Luke. He heals the blind, he makes the lame walk, he heals diseases, he raises the dead. All those things show that, that Jesus is the one that they're waiting for, but they also point back to the way the world used to be. If you go back to the first couple chapters in Genesis, you will see that God did not create a world in which someone is born from birth crippled. I think it's pretty obvious to all of us, we live in this broken and fallen world. And, and what's interesting about the miracles of Jesus is that they give us these glimpses, they give us this hope that God is going to fully restore the world. He's going to put it back as it was meant to be. So here's the deal. I can say this 
with a tad bit more understanding now that I'm over 40. Let's be honest, honest. most of our feet and ankles aren't getting any stronger, are they? Most of us, compared to this guy, we're moving in the opposite direction. Like, I used to be able to have a decent jump. At one brief moment in high school, I could dunk a mini ball. It's not going to happen today. When I got here, I found out Rich played golf, and I really wanted to play golf with Rich. And he just said, I just, I'm not playing these. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Rich had a two or three handicap at one point. I'm sure, is that right, Rich? Did you? <laughs> I'm sure Rich could, could drive the ball 300 yards. He can't do that now, I'm sure. Like, our bodies are moving in the opposite direction for most of us in this room. I was, um, a week and a half ago, I went out to, to Christian House in East Palestine and visited our, our brother Rufus. And as we were sitting there, Mary expressed to me uh, the pain of seeing someone who was once so able, having lost so much. She said, we were just talking, and she said, you know, Rufus was a, he was a baseball player. He was a good baseball player. So Rufus, he was strong, and he was athletic. And I didn't know this, but Rufus was also a math teacher. Rufus had a sharp mind. And it's clear, and you, many of you know this feeling, it's clear how painful and helpless it can be to watch someone you love and want, someone you know who was once so able lose so many of those abilities. And we can tell ourselves kind of rationally that scientifically speaking, this is the most natural thing to happen. Like Rufus is in his 90s, okay? He's lost a lot of his faculties. That seems in some ways rationally like the most normal thing, but also at the same time, it doesn't seem right. See, the, the miracles of Jesus and the miracles done in Jesus' name, they remind us that the world was not meant to be this way. And they remind us, they give us hope that the world will not always be this way. That one day God is going to restore the world. He's going to restore it to a place as it was meant to be, a place of peace and justice, about disease or conflict. And that's where our resurrected and imperishable bodies will indeed be strong. So that's, that's the first healing. But I said there's a second. I think there's signs of a second healing. What's the second healing? Well, earlier this week, I got to study this passage with three women from this congregation who had some really good insights and helped me see some things I had. And one of them was Mary Good. And she made the comment as we were reading this passage about Peter. And she said something like, that doesn't sound like Peter. I, in my mind, I heard it like, what's up with Peter? But I don't think Mary would have said that. So, but let's go with that. What's up with Peter? I think what Mary meant was that something seems a little different about Peter. This isn't the Peter that maybe we were seeing in the Gospel of Mark. And then Doris, who was also there, said, she made this observation, and I was kind of talking about how kind of brash and impulsive um, Peter was. He's just so confident of himself that he can make this man uh, stand up. And she's like, yeah, I think it does sound like Peter. And as I thought about it, I think they're both right. This, this picture of Peter both looks like Peter and it doesn't look like Peter. He's still blurting things out. He's still saying the first thing that comes to his mind. He's still talking a big talk. He's, he's very confident in this, his, his ability to, to use the name of Jesus to heal this man. And he's very confident in this sermon, this preaching that he does. But now, look, there's a difference. He's blurting out things in the name of Jesus. Now he's not, he's not tooting his own horn. He's, bragging, he's not bragging about his own strength, like even if they all fall away, I will, never, I will never fall away. No, he's bragging about Jesus and his power. And I appreciated what Mary said because it made me think 
You know, as a congregation who went through the, go the gospel of Mark, the last time we saw Peter, he was denying Jesus. Not only was he denying Jesus, he, he was probably cursing Jesus. And we were left, we got to the end of Mark, and we're left with this cliffhanger, this and Peter. So we left with this, this angel saying, hey, go to Galilee. You're going to find Jesus there, and there's hope of reconciliation and restoration. But we never got to see what happened. And of course, thankfully, we have other accounts. The Gospel of John fills in what happens there. When they get up to the Sea of Galilee, uh, Peter's out fishing. Jesus is cooking this fish breakfast on shore. Peter dives in, swims over the shore, and they have this just really beautiful scene where, where, where Jesus says, the resurrected Jesus says to Peter, Simon, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You know I love you. Take care of my sheep. You know, a third time. Simon, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. And then finally, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. So at this scene, Jesus, Peter is forgiven, but he's reinstated. Peter, you, you utterly failed me. You utterly failed me. Now lead my people. See, the, the Peter we see here in Acts, he's still the same Peter. He's, he's a bit brash pretty impulsive. He's still blurting things out. But something about this guy is different. When the, when the crowd sees what happened, they're amazed. They are utterly amazed at what Peter does. How does Peter respond? He says, what are you looking at me for? This didn't happen on account of my godliness or my power. No, this came in the name of Jesus and the faith this man had in the name of Jesus. In other words, Peter deflects the attention. He, he wants the attention, as soon as he can, he wants the attention off himself and off John and where it rightfully belongs on Jesus. It's not like a, like a false humility, like, oh, shucks, like, it's not me, it's Jesus. Or it's not like somebody who scores a touchdown and does this elaborate dance and then ends it with pointing up to God. No, Peter, he genuinely wants the attention off himself. And this is a sign of someone who has been and is being transformed. We, we live in what I recently read, an attention economy. We live in a world in many ways where uh, attention, particularly through things like social media and those kind of platforms, is almost more valuable to people than silver and gold. If you were to ask someone, would you like to have a lot of money or like to have a lot of followers? Some people would say, I want the followers. I want the attention. And if we're totally honest, we, we want so often exactly what Peter and John are getting at this moment. People are staring at them. They're thinking how great they are. They're admiring their skills. They're admiring their success. We want attention. And some of you are like, no, I want to I be obscure. So just think for a minute, if you're on social media, have you ever posted something on Facebook and gone back to see how many likes you have? We want attention. There's a psychological, there's a physiological and a psychological reason why we do this. These likes, this attention we get, it actually causes our brains to release dopamine, this feel-good hormone which is connected with pleasure, and it causes us to crave that attention more and more. It's reason why we get addicted to these kind of platforms. We are, we are quite literally wired to want attention, to want glory. It's in our nature. And it creates major challenges as disciples of Jesus. Because as disciples of Jesus, we're actually supposed to be decentering ourselves. 
We're actually supposed to be thinking more of others than ourselves. We're supposed to be putting Jesus Christ at the center of our lives and not ourselves. And all those things are working against that. And if you notice, he's kind of quiet, but John's there. Luke reminds us twice that John's there. And if you remember, John doesn't have a great track record, great track record either here. Because the last time, at least in Mark, we saw John, Jesus says, hey, what do you, he's with his brother, what do you want me to do for you? I want to sit your right hand in glory. Like John is just unabashedly saying, I want glory. I want attention. I want power. Here's the opportunity. You want glory, John? Everybody's looking at you and Peter. Everyone is utterly amazed at you at this point. What are you going to do? This is your moment. You wanted the glory, John. What are you going to do? Don't look at us. Don't look at us. Look at Jesus. If you're looking for power here, you're looking in the wrong place. What's up with Peter? What's up with John? What's, what's gotten into these guys? What's gotten into these guys is the power of resurrection and the power of forgiveness. I once heard someone say that preachers should preach from their scars, not their wounds. Preachers should preach from their scars, not their wounds. And what I heard that really stuck with me, what I heard is that it can be, whether you don't have to be preaching, but just telling your story, it can be powerful to preach on what you know intimately. So sometimes when you're preaching, you just have, you have to preach on a scripture that you might not have had firsthand experience. You've got to do it, and that's okay. But oftentimes, the most powerful ex- sermons are the ones that are emerging out of your own experience, that are emerging out of your own pain and failure in life. But usually, it's best not to preach those you've got an open wound because you're still sorting out what's happening. You're still trying to make sense out of what's happening. But from a scar, after there's been a healing, there's a lot of potential to preach a powerful sermon. And Peter uses the healing of this, this, this lame man, this man that's been lame from birth, as an opening to preach his sermon. And that's what we're reading here, this longer part that Elizabeth read. This is a sermon by Peter. And quite frankly, the sermon can sound pretty harsh. G, uh, Peter is speaking to a Jewish crowd that surrounded him. And he says, you know, among other things, you disowned uh, him before Pilate. You disowned the holy and righteous one. But remember a couple things. One, we, we need to remember Peter is a faithful Jew. He is at the temple to pray at 3 p.m., meaning it's one faithful Jew preaching to, to Jews about a Jewish man. We need to be you know, careful about how, what we do with this scripture. This is a Jewish man preaching to Jews about a Jewish man. But secondly, this word disowned, like more literally, it means uh, denied. And some translations will put, so you denied him before Pilate. And interestingly, that's the same verb that Luke used to describe Peter's denial when Peter denied Jesus three times. See, Peter's preaching, at least in some part, he's preaching from the, from the school of hard knocks, right? He's preaching from personal experience. This is very familiar with Peter. Peter's preaching from a scar here. It's a scar, but it's not, it's not an open wound because it's been healed by the resurrected Jesus. That's why Peter, after he points to Christ, can lay out some pretty harsh charges, but there's this word but in verse 18. So you disown Jesus, you killed the author of life, you acted in ignorance, but, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets saying that his Messiah would suffer. 
See, God is able to take spectacular failure. God is even able to take flat-out disobedience in the case of Peter. In, in Peter's life, in my life, in your life, and he can use it for his purposes. That's what's powerful. You killed him, God raised him from the dead. And then Peter goes on to say, repent and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This word wiped out literally means blot out. In some translations, uh, translated blot out. Wipe away, erase, obliterate. And in ancient times, the ink uh, on papyrus, the, the paper that they were writing on, it didn't soak into the paper like it does now. And so what would happen is you could write on it, but then you could actually go and wipe it off. So there's various ways, and, and Melody used a, a way to show us kind of how do we get our minds around forgiveness, right? She used water. Well, this is a good metaphor for us. How is sin removed? It's wiped out. Sin sits on the surface, but it's not indelible. It's not written in permanent ink. It can be removed with no trace remaining. And times of refreshing from the Lord can come. And Peter can, can preach this sermon because he knows this firsthand. He knows there's, there's healing power in the resurrected Jesus in his name. He knows that there's power to make a man who's been lame his entire life leap with joy. And there's power to, to take a man like Peter who was utterly broken and make him into this powerful proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That power remains available to us today. Let's pray. God, as we walk in the light of resurrection, we give thanks that we serve a living God and a, and a Jesus who reigns from the right hand of the Father who is active in this world uh, and whose name has great power to it. But I ask for us in our individual lives and as a congregation that the name of Jesus would work in powerful ways among us, in our own healing from our own brokenness, um, and exposing the ways that uh, we need, the problems under the problems, Lord, that you, the power of the name of Jesus, would, uh, would bring that about. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.